Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken at Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is again for week two calling in from Charlottesville, Virginia. Frank, how are things in Charlottesville? Things in Charlottesville are great, David. We're, I know people really, uh, you know, they're hanging on my weather reports. It's, it's nice and sunny and clear right now, a little bit cool, uh, but uh, and we're, we're, we might get some snow this weekend. It looks like the Northeast is really going to get hit, but as is the way with these things, Virginia is always in a slightly liminal space where it may or may not get it. Well, well, drive safely because Virginians sometimes have, uh, well, anyway, that's a different discussion. Um, right. I would uh, never cast, cast aspersions on my uh, uh, temporarily uh, fellow Virginians. <laughs> <laughs> you now identify as a Virginian. Okay, good. Well, that's uh, Boston roots are our people are, are complaining in Massachusetts. Right. Um, not quite sure how to transition from that to this, but we are now... Uh, I think, as everyone knows, tragically, in the second week uh, of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and I think people around the world are watching this war with a great deal of interest and trepidation, and a lot of attention has been paid to the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, who has become, um, I don't want to say a celebrity, because that's probably the wrong word, but he has become a subject of intense interest uh, and focus during this uh, two-week uh, invasion, uh, and he's been uh, words of, of praise have come from around the world, especially by Americans, but people people globally for his uh, bravery and for his uh, words uh, during uh, th this invasion. Uh, and so, what, what we thought we would do today is look at, at other examples in American history of foreigners and foreign leaders who have captivated the American imagination in the way that Zelensky's has. Uh, and see what kinds of parallels we can draw from uh, those earlier examples. Uh, Frank, do you have any initial thoughts on Zelensky and, and, and the, the celebrity culture that's developed around Zelensky in a weird way? Yeah, I would actually um, slightly challenge your description of celebrity. I mean, he is a he was and is a celebrity in Ukraine because he was a entertainer and comedian mm. and appeared on the Ukrainian Dancing with the Stars, et cetera, et cetera, before he got elected president. But I think that uh, his image, at least in much of the world, not in Russia, of course, mm. <laughs> is, I, I don't think it's overstating it, is to say heroic. I think people oh, have be been sure. inspired yeah. around the world by the efforts of the Ukrainians to uh, defend themselves and defend themselves against this invasion and, and the actions of individual, uh, many, many thousands of individual Ukrainians. But I think Zelensky's become kind of the apotheosis of this for, for, for many outside of Ukraine, uh, both by his own individually heroic actions, but also as the, the nation's leader and uh, as a kind of representative for those of us who are outside of the Ukraine, uh, outside of Ukraine, um, in, in looking in at this conflict. So, and I know you weren't intending to suggest sure. this. So, so there's something more at work here than simply um, celebrity. And that, I think that helps hmm, explain sure. why he's captured the world's imagination uh, in the way that he has. And, and I think that in, in thinking about other moments when Americans at least have, have adopted um, uh, foreign figures, that is non-American figures, uh, as heroes. I think I mean, maybe that's the way to think about it. Um, I think Zelensky it fits in a, in a in a tradition that's that's got some deep roots, but also 
these things don't happen very often. No, they, uh, by no. their very nature, they're rare. And we, we you know, we're used to uh, politicians being craven or, you know, having feet of clay or this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, uh, we don't know enough about Zelensky necessarily. We, we who live outside of Ukraine to necessarily comment on these kinds of things, but, but certainly he has captured the imagination in ways that are pretty rare. And it, it's our, our object today is to try and think of some other examples of this through, through history. All right. So from early America, that, that, what what names jump out to you, Frank, as, as as analogs? Yeah, two spring to mind, David. And and I think they each in their own way um, establish almost archetypes for what will come later. <laughs> um, because I, I, I I'd at least discern two real trends um among the the individuals we're going to be discussing so the first is um citizen genet edmund genet who came to the united states as the french ambassador rec um representing revolutionary france in 1793 and 94. he had a very very tumultuous tenure as a as a as the uh, representative of revolutionary france in the United States. He was very controversial, uh, or by the end of his time, he only served for, you know, he served for less than a year, actually. But um, by the end of his tenure, he he was actually removed from office by the French government. He was in danger of being executed. He was given asylum in the United States. But for a very brief period after he arrived in the country, he was extremely popular. And indeed, this popularity went to his head to the extent that he sought to go over George Washington's head to the American people um, uh, over matters concerning uh, the neutrality of the United States during the French Revolution. So, so to very briefly sum this up, Genet comes to the country and uh, he's greeted with a, he arrives in South Carolina and he's greeted by a rapturous crowd and there are dinners to celebrate and fet his arrival. And Genet has, as he's tasked by his government to um, really try to pull the United States into the wars of the French Revolution on behalf of the French, not not necessarily um, explicitly, but certainly implicitly. So he's outfitting privateers in, in, in Charleston. He's, uh, he's supposed to organize rebellions in what is the West of the United States at this point. We're talking about Kentucky and places like this um, and to attack Spain and, and, and Britain. And he's, basically a troublemaker, but he's he's very charming and he's greeted, at least in the first instance, as a hero because he's the representative of France at the, you know, at, at a time when, at least for some Americans, the French Revolution was popular. He makes his way to Philadelphia and he it's a bit of a triumphal procession for him. And this all goes to his head. And when the Washington administration says, you know, slow your roll there, buddy, we're not going to we're not going to give up our neutrality. And uh, there's a long dispute, uh, which we don't need to go into, about him uh, launching a warship or, or sending a, war, uh, a newly commissioned French ship, uh, not, a, not a formal warship, but a, but a privateer from Philadelphia. Uh, and and this is a violation of American neutrality. And he overreaches himself and he threatens to go to the American people and. Washington and actually Jefferson on Washington's behalf as the Secretary of State basically says, yeah, you 
if you go over, if you try to go over Washington's head to the American people, you're going to fail. Uh, eventually, the government calls for him to be recalled. They write to the French and say, this guy's out of control. The French government says, we're very embarrassed. Yes, we'll recall him. There's been a change in power in France, uh, in, in the leadership in Paris. And so if he goes back, he's actually going to be executed. Um, Washington gives him um, asylum in the United States, and he lives another 30 years outside New York on a farm. Uh, he's a very colorful character. He's an well, interesting character. What does character. he do on the farm? Does he like run a plow? Does he like... Uh, he, he owns land. He's a kind of country gentleman. Um, nice. Okay. He'd previously been kicked out. In fact, there, there's a Russian link here because he'd previously been serving as a translator in Moscow for the French government. And he was so obnoxious that the, the Russians kicked him out too. So he wasn't a very effective diplomat, but for a very brief period of time, and this might be something to consider in terms of our, our, our the people we discussed today, uh, how long their fame lasts. His was very, very evanescent. It didn't last very long. Or, um, and so, so uh, Citizen Genet is a start. But what I think he represents, before I get to the second one, is there's an association with political radicalism or revolution and resistance abroad that's, uh, there's a trend that some foreign revolutionaries, not all, because you know we, we think of people who are uh, anathema in the United States, like Fidel Castro, but um, or Che Guevara, um, but 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 there are some foreign revolutionaries who or or people who resist uh, authorit authoritarianism who are embraced historically, and I think I think Genet is in that in that tradition. Briefly, the other one I'd say, and I won't say as much about this, so we can we can hand things over to you, mm. would be the Marquis de Lafayette. Now, Lafayette's well known in America because, of course, he he was a uh, young soldier and officer in the Continental Army during the Revolution. He came as a volunteer. He uh, was beloved by Washington. He named his son George Washington Lafayette. Um, and Lafayette returned to the United States on a, a triumphal tour in 1824-25. Uh, he's the last surviving major general from the Revolution at that point. I mean, it's 50 years after the War of Independence. And he was and like 19 when he came to the U.S. Or came that's right. So he was a very so was young very man. Young. He was very young when he fought in the war. But his reputation... But as a revolutionary again, um, but, you know, as a supporter of the French, uh, sorry, the American and the early days, the more moderate and acceptable version of the French Revolution to many Americans, that and his association with the founding of the country as it approached its 50th anniversary, all of that combined meant that he had a real, uh, uh, an extended and triumphal tour uh, of, of the United States in 1824 and 25. And I think Lafayette represents another thread to this, which is war leaders or participants in war. He combines both elements, the kind of revolutionary, but also mm. uh, the warrior aspect. And so the foreigners Americans have tended to admire, uh, I think we can say this, are often associated with wartime leadership. Not always, of course, because it depends yeah. on what the individuals are fighting for. So I think Genet and Lafayette, but kind of political radicalism of a, of a certain certain stripe that's acceptable to Americans and wartime leadership, but they represent these two trends. And I think those are the two threads that run through most of the people we're talking about. Would you yeah, agree? I, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I think that, that in some ways, and this is maybe kind of obvious the, the, the foreign leaders that Americans latch onto are ones that they see embodying certain kinds of American values or, or American tropes. 
you know, so they, they latch on to people who they say, oh, look, this is the George Washington of X, or they, this is somebody who is embodying certain kinds, you know, and, and both Lafayette and Janae, and at least in Janae's early phases, you know, are, are representative of that. Um, you know, in some ways, the, the details of who these people are overseas, much in the way Zelensky is like the details of who he is and his policies are less relevant than the, the underlying sort of ethos of the things he's saying, the ways they reverberate um, in the United States. Now, I think, yeah, especially uh, Lafayette's a great example of that. Yep. So what do we have if we go forward in the 19th century, David? What have you got before? Well, I've got several. Uh, and I, I'm going to tell you about my rubric, though, to try to figure out what, you know, how okay. to figure out. Okay, so I have a rubric, and the rubric is, is twofold. And I'm, I'm sort of basing this on, on, on Lafayette in some ways. One is, do Americans name places after them? Oh, good, good, good. Because the 19th century is the great age of expansion, and, and you can tell a lot about a place based on you know, there's all the dozens of places named after Andrew Jackson or Henry Clay or what have you. Uh, and so do Americans name places after prominent uh, foreign leaders? And do they name their children after them? Because there's Americans, especially in the 19th century, named their children after politicians. That tradition seems to have mostly died out, but it was very common uh, then. You know, so we have tons of people named after George Washington, other stuff, but we also have people named after uh, foreign leaders. And so I've got three uh, sort of, a, 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 and I'm going to do this in descending order of, 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 you know, sort of two honorable mentions and a, and a winner. Uh, the, the second honorable mention is Otto von Bismarck, uh, the, the uh, famous for being the, the unifier of Germany at the end of the 19th century. Uh, he has uh, three cities named after him, one in Illinois, one in Missouri, and uh, one in North Dakota. The one in North Dakota is the capital. Um, and I think those reflect both uh, his popularity in the United States, especially among German immigrants, uh, but also reflects the desire uh, by people in North Dakota, Missouri, and Illinois to attract German immigrants by naming cities after Bismarck. The one in North Dakota is actually named by uh, people in the Northern Pacific Railway who wanted to get German settlers to come and live in that part of North Dakota. So they decided to name a city after after the German uh, leader in 1873, which is actually pretty early in, in Bismarck's career. Uh, but number two, uh, Simon Bolivar, the Latin American revolutionary leader from the 1820s. Uh, he was, uh, you know, in some, you know, the great liberator of, of of a number of Latin American countries of Colombia, of Peru, of, of Ecuador, and what have you. Uh, he has lots and lots of places named after him. There's a Bolivar County in Missouri. There are towns in New York and Tennessee and West Virginia and Ohio. There's statues of him in a number of places. Uh, but he was very popular in the United States during his lifetime in, in the 1820s. There's a great book yeah, by that's right. Caitlin Fitz, uh, Our Sister Republics, that looks at at this, among other things. So there were songs written about him in the United States. There were Bolivar hats that people wore uh, that, that sort of evoked him. Um, during Fourth of July celebrations, they often made toasts either to him or to um, independence in the Americas, you know, connecting American independence to the liberation from Spain of countries in Latin America and Bolivar was sort of the manifestation of that. 
there was a uh, lots of children named after him. Um, if you look at the sort of the Civil War generation, you'll find a bunch of people named Simon that are named after him. Uh, so, so he's a, an interesting figure in in that respect. We even the U.S. Navy had a ship named the, the Simon Bolivar that was a submarine in the '60s, which I think sort of speaks to his lasting influence. Um, the most prominent, though, of, of I think of these figures uh, is uh, Leos Kossuth, who is a Hungarian independence leader who I think in the United States has largely been forgotten now, but in the mid 19th century was amazingly popular. Uh, he was one of the leaders of the revolutions in 1848. He, he wanted to break Hungary free from the uh, Austrian empire. He has some initial success, but then has to flee in 1849. He goes a variety of places. He ends up in the United States in 1851. And his arrival in 1851, lots of people compared it to Lafayette, saying that you know, his arrival was greeted with the same kind of enthusiasm. There's this description uh, in the New York Sun, which was a popular newspaper, describing his, his, uh, his arrival in New York as Kasuth mania. They said people were giving gifts that were Kasuth themed for Christmas. People were eating goulash for the first time and people saying, like, we're doing this because we embrace him. There were special cravats, ties that people wore that uh, were supposed to evoke him much in the same way that people are using the, the Ukrainian colors today. There were special belts and umbrellas that were branded with his image on him, uh, all kinds of stuff. So so he, he was greeted with much of the sort of... Uh, there, there were flags, for instance, that were flown in New York that said, Kasuth, the Washington of Hungary. Now, whether he's the Washington of Hungary or not, it's a different question, but he, he, he was held up in that kind of position, much in the same way that sort of Zelensky is. So, so these three, David, again, seem to fit in the revolutionaries and or military heroes model. Uh, yeah, I just want to was... throw in just a, just a couple more things about, about Kasuth because he, he's pretty cool. All right, and then I've, I've got a follow-up for you. Okay, so he, after he goes to New York, he goes to D.C. He has two banquets for his honor in the White House with President Fillmore. Congress has a banquet for him. He becomes the second foreigner to address a joint meeting of Congress after Lafayette was the first. Um, you know, uh, he's praised by Horace Greeley as among the orders, patriots, statesmen, exiles, he has living or dead no superior which is high praise. And Lincoln praises him. His beard may have inspired all the Americans in the mid-19th century to grow a beard. So all the Civil War generals who have a beard have their roots in, in this Hungarian revolutionary. Was he famously bearded? I mean, did he, he was famously, a... he had a big sort of um, extravagant beard that, that, that I think you know, may, you know, Americans of the revolutionary generation were mostly clean-shaven. Americans of, of the Civil War era are, are mainly bearded, and uh, Kasuth is attributed with, with one of the sort of factors that made it fashionable. Listeners can't obviously see what I can see, but David, as he was describing the beard, was gesturing for a it, large it's, it's, it's quite, beard. It's quite an impressive yeah. beard. Take a, take a look at uh, Kasuth. He's a, a, you know, a charismatic-looking guy. 
So, so David, you, you, I, mean, I think that that's excellent. And I think Kasuth probably is our winner for the, for the mid-19th century. I've got a, an observation and a question for you. So the observation is uh, using your criteria about naming places and people after somebody. And I think there's somebody I should have mentioned during the revolutionary era, mm. which is Pascal Paoli, who is the um, Corsican revolutionary and independence leader of the mid 18th century in the 1760s, who's a becomes a bit of an international icon. And so Paoli, Pennsylvania is named after him where there's a massacre during the War of Independence. But Ebenezer McIntosh, who's one of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty in, in, in Boston, names his son. It's a great name, Pascal Paoli McIntosh. <laughs> so it kind of rolls off the tongue. That's and fun. so there was a kind of cult of Pascal pa Paoli. So he might be the uh, he antecedent. might be the antecedent for a lot of this. But apropos of your period, one thing one thing that, that might emerge is the importance of royalty. Americans have this hmm. strange relationship with royalty, both uh, revulsion and, and fascination. And the future King Edward VII, when he was uh, Prince of Wales, visited America in 1860 did that did that engender any kind of um popular response well, does he fit yes. he, he didn't make the cut for your your list so, so well so, so talk he about didn't that. make the, the cut my list for a couple of reasons i mean one you know americans were were interested in his visit you know much in the same way americans always visit interested when when royalty visits there's the fascination with royalty uh, but especially in new york there were some deep divisions caused by his visit in as much as there were a large number of irish immigrants in new york um, who were very hostile as one can imagine too uh, in the in the aftermath of the famine uh, hostile to the british monarchy and, and hostile to him there, there were some uh, famous cases where there were um, Militia companies in New York and many of the militia companies in New York were, were based around different ethnicities. And many of the uh, men in the, in the Irish militia companies simply said, no, I am not, you know, even though I've been told I'm supposed to march it in a parade in front, I'm not doing this. This guy is, is a, you know, what he symbolizes is not something I want to, to honor. Uh, and a bunch of them got court-martialed and other things. Um, one of the things, though, that strikes me about both Genet and Kasuth is, you know, not only are Americans interested in them, but they are trying to use, I mean, I think they understand the cult of celebrity, the cult of, of, of use and, and of popularity, and, and, and they're doing it so with, you know, political ends on, on their part. I think in that respect, there may be some parallels with Zelensky. I mean, what Kasuth wanted was to go to New York or go to New York and go to DC and raise support for Hungarian independence. He wanted money, he wanted military support, he wanted, you know, and you know, as celebrated as Kasuth was, he ultimately left disappointed because he didn't, you know, he got a lot of parades and he got people to, you know, wear fancy ties in his honor, but like. He didn't end up getting what he wanted out of his United States, you know. And I think Genet was the same thing. Where he, I think, he had political objectives in business in the United States and what he wanted to get out of it. And I think he was recognizing the sort of the power of, of foreign celebrity and the ability to to, to sort of captivate uh, not only to 
you know, have parades in his honor, but to, to really make a political difference. And I think, you know, Zelensky, you know, you mentioned his, his background as an actor. I think he recognizes the power of media. And even if, you know, he's not able to go to New York and have a parade, I think Zelensky understands images. He understands, you know, how the media works. He understands how social media works. He understands how to speak in front of a camera. Um, and so you know, I think as interested in, as Americans and other people are in Zelensky, I think Zelensky knows that. And I think he's recognizing the power that he has, you know, to, to leverage that potentially. Um, and so that puts him in the same sort of categories to see in terms of somebody who wants, uh, you know, to, to use this, this, this popularity for a political end. I think that's right. I mean, I, I, although I said he's more than a celebrity, I think his experience as a celebrity ha, is serving him well because he's an expert communicator. Mm -hmm. And in watching him, you know, he's a very, very powerful speaker. And when he switches to Russian, it's very, very effective and addresses the Russian people directly. Um, I, I, I think that Zelensky is, um, he, he reminds me in terms of his ability to communicate of Obama. Hmm. But of course he's doing it while people are trying to kill him. Kill him, exactly. No, 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 but he's doing it during wartime. He's doing it, oh, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, you know, this, this is a, this is a very gifted political communicator sure. and, 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 and that comes across and, and, um, you know, you're right. Genet aspired to that and succeeded for a few weeks. But, you know, to, to sustain that kind of thing in order to advance a political cause is relatively unusual. But I think we see it in some of our 20th century examples. So the 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 perhaps the most important 20th century example, and we may disagree slightly about mm. this, I think, is Winston Churchill, who, of course, was renowned as a wartime leader and as a community and an effective communicator. And I, I, I think that Churchill um, would be one of our 20th century examples. Although I think that based on our conversation before we started recording, you yeah. think his, his, his reputation is more posthumous than during his lifetime yeah. than, I, than I do. Oh, well, I, mean, I tried to, cause I, I thought about him too, as a figure that you know, a foreign leader who has clearly become prominent and iconic in the United States especially in the past 40 years. I mean, the, the bust of, you know, whether or not Biden's kind of a bust of Churchill in the Oval Office became one of the stupid scandals of a year and a bit ago. Um, but going back and looking at material from, from the 40s, you know, he, he didn't have the, the, the cult of, of, of you know, a personality in the United States in the way that some of these other figures did. He was not as celebrated. There weren't, um, you know, with Lafayette and Kasuth, there, there were commemorative stuff you could get with him so you could wear, you know, pins and buttons to celebrate. And there wasn't the same kind of uh, adoration for Churchill that, that was going to become afterwards. And I think the same is actually probably also true in the UK from my understanding is that you know Churchill was respected but you know the fact that he gets voted out of office in 1945 suggests that you know he's not as universally loved as in the way that he becomes or has become um, in in more recent years 
Although I think his legacy in the UK is much more contested than it is. Well, in the US. now it is. It, it, yes. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, because but, they but, probably know more about it. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, with all of these figures, I mean, you're right. Americans are often, and I, and I don't think Americans are unique in this. I think this will be happening in other countries too, but they're projecting their own values and interests and, and priorities on these people and seeing them through their lens, yeah. uh, not necessarily as they were seen or reflecting on their policies or uh, especially domestic policies in their own countries. So that's not really uh, understandably the concern, the concern of Americans. But I think you know, we've discussed the special relationship and my skepticism about the very the, the mm. term, let alone the, the existence of the special relationship, the so-called special relationship is, is, is well known to listeners of this, this podcast. But um, to the extent that the special relationship exists, I think it's an invention of Winston Churchill and mm. Churchill persuading Americans and recognizing that Britain needed the, the help of the United States. You know, if you think that 80 years before the future King Edward VII, sure, there's interest in that, but ho-hum and, and, and he's controversial. Churchill's a, you know, he's a supporter of the British Empire. He's an mm. imperialist. We know this. And, sure, and, sure. And, and it was well known at the time, yet he's also a, and, and, and he could have run up against the same kind of difficulties that, that um, Edward VII or the future Edward VII mm. did. The context is very different, of course, in 1940, yeah. you know, and the United States will soon be involved in the war. But I think Churchill's uh, reputation as a communicator and as a wartime leader, a very, very sanitized and a particular version of it really did resonate with Americans. Mm. Particularly, they liked the friendship with, with Franklin Roosevelt and so on. And, and uh, I, I think... I, I, I think I don't think we should underestimate the significance of Churchill's leadership during the Second World War and its impact on Americans in helping to persuade Americans that they had a stake in that conflict. I agree with you that his posthumous reputation, and this is something that makes him different from mm. some, some of the other people we've discussed. Genet has no posthumous reputation. People are surprised <laughs> that he's still alive in 1820 and living in New York. Um, you, you, the, 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 Churchill's assumes this posthumous importance that, that's pretty remarkable. I um, once visited, I, I had to do an event, a um, uh, Jefferson-related event in Dallas, and, and my host had busts of Churchill and Margaret Thatcher, about whom I think we might speak in a minute, mm. um, you know, in, in their office, you know, to kind of make the statements. So, so the, the, the Churchill cult in the United States is a really fascinating thing. Yeah. But I do think it does have some roots in, in, in his actual life experience during the war when he was alive. Okay. Uh, well, people who are more expert on, on, on 20th century stuff may, may call in to, to weigh in on which of us is, is, is may have a... Uh, more on that particular point. Uh, who, so for, for the 20th century, I also have a weird rubric that I used, uh, not name, place names. The rubric I used was a Gallup poll. Starting in 1946, Gallup starts to ask Americans who is the man they admire most and the woman they admire most, which is a stupid poll on the most part. It's mostly a, a popularity contest or a name recognition contest. Um, so so the, it's... This is irrespective of nationality. So presumably most of the winners are Americans. In fact, most of the winners, the person who usually wins, the president usually becomes the most popular person, man, and the first lady is the most admired. It's the most okay. admired okay. man. Most So like the, the, the actual winners are mostly boring uh, and predictable. Uh, 
Um, uh, but there's a couple of, ex of interesting sort of footnotes in there that I think are, are worth pointing out. Uh, two, two foreigners show up quite prominently. Uh, Golda Meir, uh, who was oh, interesting. the winner for the most, uh, the most admired woman in 1971, 73, and 74, so a three-time winner of that. Um, intriguingly, she uh, was born in Kiev. I hadn't known that before I started to look that look this up. What I did know is she actually lived in the United States for much of her childhood. Her family moved to Milwaukee, uh, and then uh, she moves to uh, Palestine, eventually what is now uh, Israel, and is the, the prime minister from 1969 to 1974. Uh, but during she a period is, of war. So she's a, period, a war leader. She's a, well, so I think part of it is she's a war leader, and part of it is when people did this poll and said, who are the women you admire most? I think, you know, the, the number of female political leaders that people had to choose from were, were relatively limited in 1973, 74, um, which may speak to, to her prominence there, at least in part. She's also named uh, by a group called American Mothers, 1974, they call her, they give her the honor of mother of the year which is interesting for a group called American Mothers. They're naming a, a, a foreign political leader as, as Mother of the Year. Uh, Thatcher also ends up getting uh, top marks in this Gallup poll in 82, 83, and 84. Um, and, you know, I think she sort of has that similar, you know, she's not a revolutionary leader, but she is a war leader during that point. Yeah, you know? That's right. Uh, war in the Falklands. And of course, Thatcher, sorry, David, if I can jump in. Um, yeah. Thatcher evokes at the period the Churchill myth is really taking root or the cult of Churchill, not myth, uh, echoes of that. So there's, a, you know, mm -hmm. Reagan and Thatcher very much leaned into each for their own political purposes, the earlier FDR Churchill relationship because it oh, served them in their own domestic politics. So I think that might have been played a role. Anyway, I'm sorry. Oh, to be sure. And she's one of the few uh, foreigners to get the Presidential Medal, Medal of Freedom, which she gets in 1991. So um, I think she's definitely in, in the category of, you know, and again, I think that this point where, where I think most Americans who, whether they're voting for the, in the Gallup poll or whether they're, you know, having other uh, uh, cults to, or, you know, shrines to Thatcher, uh, it's as much about her relationship with Reagan and about her stance in the Cold War. It probably has very little to do with the kinds of domestic policy, you know, the ways in which Thatcher is read in the United States versus how she's actually read in the UK are very different, um, I think, because of that. Who else do you have on your list for, for 20th century? Well, for the 20th figures? century, yeah, thanks, David. Uh, I, I think there are some revolutionaries we need to consider. And these, mm. as I say, are acceptable revolutionaries to, to many Americans. So. Uh, Lech Walesa in, in Poland and leading the solidarity movement mm. in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, in a similar uh, vein, Václav Havel, uh, when he was leading the, uh, when he led the Czechoslovakia to, to um, at the end of the Cold War. Uh, more controversial to some people, but then he achieved a status that was, most of these people couldn't challenge really, or uh, is is Nelson Mandela, 
Hmm. I mean, Mandela was very controversial to some Americans, particularly on the right, and portrayed as a terrorist, but, but particularly after his release from prison. And Mandela achieved a kind of level of international admiration that was near universal um, over the course of his life. And I think Mandela um, would, would be... So, so those are the three I, I would say come from the revolutionary rather than the military tradition, but yeah. who are have been popular. Um, Gorbachev was popular for a while in the United States, uh, not not to the same extent because he was a, also seen as kind of a you know uh, uh, functionary and so on. Uh, but but I, I think those three, um, Valenza, Havel, and Mandela. Uh, are, are heirs to the revolutionary tradition of, uh, of foreigners that Americans admire. What do you think? Gorbachev, oh, I think those are, those are good lists. You know, thinking about, you know, places Americans also name high schools after. Right, You okay. know, like I'm trying to think of like, what are, the, what are these sort of analogs to, to, you can't name a town after people because they're not naming that many towns after people, but you know, they do name sort of high schools and there, there are, I think I was just checking. There are high schools named after uh, Nelson Mandela in the United States. There are several of them, and, and I think that sort of reflects that. You know, even if people don't, what what they're embodying in, in those names is is less the specifics of the the policies and the politics. It, it's the sort of I, the ideas they stand for. You know, um, much in the way I think you know Zelensky, um, you know, what he embodies is is, is not the specifics of, of Ukrainian politics, but but this you know, fight against uh, authoritarianism is and, and bravery is what, what people admire about him. Yeah, it's the combination of physical bravery and and fighting against tyranny. It's, mm. It seems to be a pretty and as I said a moment ago, really really impressive communication skills you know, to, mm. to articulate what 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 the what the struggle is about. Let me throw one at you, David. That that doesn't fit the kind of two broad categories that I laid out at the beginning. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I think warrants some consideration, and um, this may surprise people. Uh, but but where does Princess Diana fit in this? Because it occurs to me mm-hmm. that again in the United, especially in the United States, she becomes more than a celebrity. I mean, she is a celebrity, of course, she's a celebrity, and People Magazine covered her, and Us Magazine, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, and the tabloids. And she was famous for her appearance and her appearances and her relationships and so on. But there was the work with landmines and things and, and um, you know, the, the reaction to both her marriage and her death uh, mm. really impacted Americans. Does, does, does Princess Diana fit in this template at all? or fit in the, Does she warrant consideration? That's a good question because she's in a weird... I would put her in a sort of a hybrid category where, where part of, of, I think her popularity is, is about, it is celebrity in a, in a Hollywood sense of, of things. You know, there was attention to how she was dressed and, you know, her love life and all that kind of, 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 of things. You know, she's not a political leader in a traditional sense. All the rest of the people we're talking about to one degree or another are, are are democratic leaders who are fighting against, you know, non-democratic governments for the most part. Um, and how one wants to define all of these things, um, you know, whereas she is 
you know, marrying into the royal family, which doesn't sort of fit. Uh, but uh, you know, she does, she she isn't also. There's more to her simply, I think, than as you point out, she's more than simply a, a like a Hollywood celebrity. Like there there are elements to her life that are uh, Americans are attracted to. Um, you know, going back to the, the Gallup poll, you know, going into the numbers, but the there there the people in the royal family are often in there. Queen Elizabeth shows up basically in all of them. You know, usually is seventh or eighth place in terms of, of, of women people admire, which may have to do with name recognition more than anything else. But, uh, you know, uh, Americans have a very strange relationship with royalty and with British royalty in particular. Okay, so that, that was your one weird case. I'm not quite sure she fits, but who at your second, what's your second marginal? Or, no, no, no. That, the, the, that was it. Okay. Yeah, that was it. Sorry. I, I, if I misspoke, I apologize. Um, is there anybody else who warrants consideration in, in your mind? Anybody we should have considered that we didn't? Oh, um, you know, I think Ansan Suchi was was for oh. a moment a you know a celebrated, um, and obviously her her legacy has gotten more complicated in recent years because of the political developments. Um, but you know, there was a moments in which she was embodying, I think, many of the same, uh, you know, political uh, fights for democracy and independence and, and rejection of authoritarianism that you know Mandela did, or or many of these other figures did. Um, the, the the point you made though earlier about how brief many of these popularities are, I think, is quite telling. You know, I think the uh, cult of uh, Zelensky or, or what have you may not last any longer than, than for many of these other leaders in terms of their you know, grip. I know Thatcher is an interesting case where this she seems to have uh, grown in popularity. Um, I'm curious to see where this develops over the next. Obviously, there's going to wait be myriad ways in which it's going to develop on the ground in Ukraine. Um, but uh, it'd be very curious to see how this develops in terms of its uh, reception in the United States, because he's demonstrated both some, you know, he, he's appealing to the United States, but I think he's also expressed some disappointment that, that the United States has not done more uh, to support Ukraine over the past two weeks, whether that's establishing a, a no-fly zone that he's asked for or for other kinds of, of military support. Um, so we will see. What do you make of the fact that a bunch of these guys are young and attractive? Of course, that's a huge part of it. That, uh, uh, you, that, that, uh, what do I make of it? I, 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 you know, welcome to the human race, David. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so, so, so not all of them. <laughs> Churchill is not young sure, or But, but, not, but, but of these ones who are the sort of like revolutionary, you know, so. Dashing young revolutionaries, David, are attractive to Dashing people. Dashing young, yeah, yeah okay. Cause, cause you know, I mean, uh, I don't I don't think that's surprising at all. And I think if we think about celebrity, mm. um, you, you know, celebrity is a complicated thing. It's a complicated business and attractiveness is part of it. And attractiveness has all, there are many qualities that make up attractiveness, including physical appearance, but not only. I mean, so the fact that Zelensky is um, good looking, but also funny and brave. Mm. Well, who wouldn't like the guy apart sure. from Vladimir Putin? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and as far as what, and, and, and interestingly, and I don't 
want to make light of the situation in Ukraine at all. Um, if Ukraine successfully resists this Russian invasion mm. and emerges as an intact state, in, intact independent state, which I think we all hope for, and he survives, one can imagine him emerging as one of the most important political leaders in the world, and certainly in Europe. Mm. Uh, if it doesn't, or he's killed, then if he's killed, he'll be martyred, I suspect, because he's so widely admired at the moment. But as you say, we've just begun the third week of this conflict. There's a long way to go. Mm. And of course, uh, this isn't about popularity if, for him or for the people sure. of Ukraine. And I, and I know you're not suggesting as such. So it, it's very difficult to predict what will happen what will happen to him because there are so many external factors that are going to mm. determine that. Having said that, his role is, or you know, historians, particularly uh, in this day and age, tend to give a lot of emphasis to kind of macro historical uh, trends and developments to explain what's going on. Zelensky's demonstrating actually individuals do make a difference now and then, and I, and political leadership matters. Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, you know I Putin so. is is I think has been surprised by the amount of international support Ukraine has had. Yes, um, and I think. Zelensky is is part of that. You know, obviously, you know, Russia is engaged in um, military aggression against its its neighbors for fifteen years now, and and and, and this is the first time there's been this kind of global response to it. And, and I think maybe you know, Zelensky is 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 is, is and, well, and the people on the ground doing the fighting. Are, are definitely part part of part of that response. I, I guess I'd say in closing, I want Ukraine. I want Zelensky to live long enough and to rule long enough so that we can live to be disappointed by him as an ordinary politician. <laughs> that would be a great outcome because that would mean that this, you know, ends as as we all hope it will. Um, I'd I'd rather that happen than he he's a martyr. Well, I hope I hope he lives long enough and he is able to stay in, in Ukraine and doesn't end up being a farmer in New York like Susan yeah. May does. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Kasuth ends up like dying in, in, in Turin, Italy or something, disappointed that he never got Hungarian independence. So, um, you know, uh, there's a number of ways that he could end up. But uh, right. Time for last drops. What you got, Frank? I want to just, uh, well, two things, David. Uh, one, one isn't really history, but I think it will become history, which is the story that brought, and it's a little bit lighter than, than, than most of the news at the moment. Um, the story that emerged from the January 6th commission, the detail this week, that Stephen Miller, the high, highly ranked and, and very controversial Trump aide, um, the, the, the January 6th commission in their investigation discovered that he's still on his parents' cell phone plan. And I just think as a historical footnote in the, for histor our colleagues in the future will probably find that very amusing and might even be confused by it. But, but anybody who lived in this moment when uh, will understand this and you like me, you're children aren't as old as mine, but but you won't be surprised yeah. by this. Yes. You will yeah, not no. be surprised. By it. In the same way that there are 
weird uh there's a weird sharing of netflix logins that goes on among families and friendship groups i, I is, i've heard tell this happens yes this is an interesting this will be an interesting footnote of this moment so um you know stephen miller's a controversial figure he's a he's a he's an awful figure in many respects but the fact that he's still apparently as of last year was on his parents cell phone plan even though he was a uh senior uh, aide in the Trump White House and a fully uh, seemingly autonomous adult at the time is something I think many people can identify with. So there's that. But then the, my, my actual last drop is that um, I want to call people's attention to the upcoming Fennel Lecture. The Fennel Lecture is the most important public lecture that we have here. At, we have at the University of Edinburgh each year. Uh, this year's Fennel Lecture will be on May 12th. So it's a couple months away and it will be delivered by Marlena doubt of the University of Virginia, who will be speaking about um, the kingdom of Haiti and the age of revolutions. And so Marlena, who's an expert in Haitian history, uh, is going to be speaking about the Haitian revolution, which is timely and interesting. And I think it's going to be a great event. Uh, I'm involved in some meetings next week. We will have details, you know, further details to share with, with, with listeners uh, in the next few weeks about when and where and how to access the lecture and so on. But I just want to call people's election, uh, sorry, attention to Marlena's lecture and the date at this point, which is the 12th of May. Okay, so I'm put that in their calendars and, and we will be the first place to get tickets when tickets become available Maybe at least. That's right. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. And uh, what's your last drop, David? Uh, well, I just want to highlight uh, a really cool interview that happened, uh, I guess, last week, where the historian Heather Cox Richardson, who we've talked about in the show in the past, um, was able to interview President Biden and talk about to President Biden about uh, his understanding of American history and his place in it and tries to sort of contextualize you know, this moment with him. Um, and, and sort of dropped like an unexpected album, you know, the sort of interview showed up and she said, Hey, I interviewed president Biden, watch this. And it, it's a really fascinating interview, uh, by one of our country's top historians. And, and, uh, you know, it's not that often that historians get to interview presidents, you know, in the midst of a particularly turbulent time, uh, as we are in the moment. So, uh, I recommend taking, taking a, a watch at, or a listen as you will to, to that, that interview. That's a great interview. And if anyone was in doubt about who the most influential uh, historian in the United States is today, it's probably Heather Cox Richardson. Interesting. Yes. So, so definitely worth, 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 worth your time. Great. Until next, next week, Frank. Cheers. All right, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod, and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.